Well, I hope that you, uh, I hope you believe that, church family, that uh, our wonderful God has good intentions for your life. Uh, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That's, this is why we're here. This is why we exist as a church family, to share uh, this message. And it's why it's so very important for us to always be, be ready, ready to share this message, and just ready uh, as God defines readiness. Readiness is our theme today. We're going to be talking about preparation and readiness. And um, I had a delightful and fun uh, Thursday afternoon. I got to spend some time uh, with Brett Johnson. Uh, the Johnsons are just a wonderful, wonderful church, uh, part of our church family here, and Brett is a firefighter for the Champaign Fire Department, and so I got to hang out at a fire station last Thursday, and uh, I just love being a pastor. I can do that, right? And uh, so we had a wonderful conversation about what readiness looks like in Brett's world. So um, let's just kind of start with some introductions. Uh, tell us how long you've been with the Champaign Champagne Fire Department and what your rank and responsibilities are, Brett. Uh, I've been with Champagne Fire about 22 years now. Uh, I'm a lieutenant, which means I'm in charge of an engine company. Uh, an engine company consists of myself, a driver, and a firefighter. And uh, we go everywhere together. We're, we're always with our big red truck. And uh, a lot of responsibility goes along with that. So, uh, what about the initial training that you need to receive to get you ready and prepared for, for uh, firefighting? Well, once you're hired, they send you through a six-week academy that's very intensive, hands-on, practical training. Uh, from there, you'll go to more specialized breathing air pack training, uh, hazardous materials training, emergency medical technician training, hmm. uh, confined space rescue vertical rescue, technical rescue, a lot of different uh, courses. Pretty much the first six, eight months is a lot of training. Mm. And then it, does it stop there? No. Uh, once you've come back and you're on a regular shift, uh, we train every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday uh, of every week. So if the first week might be firefighting, the second week emergency medical stuff, the third week hazardous materials, and the fourth week might be a technical rescue skill. Does it get old? The training, I mean, if you've got to do it every week, does it get old? Uh, no, uh, I wouldn't say getting old because you constantly have to check yourself and make sure you're up to speed with skills and knowledge. And uh, I told the first service, like, this past week, I started out my day uh, right out of the box. We go to someone that fell off a scaffolding. From there, we went to a person having a stroke. From there, we did two hours of firefighter training. Then we went to a carbon monoxide call, and a person fell out of bed, and and a couple other things in there I don't remember. But there's always something going on. Every call is different. Huh. So uh, to keep yourself ready and prepared, you're constantly challenging yourself to, to make sure you're, you're ready to go. What about the station itself? What are si- so when I went to the station, there were obvious signs of readiness there at the station. Talk us through what that looks like. Well, I work a 24-hour shift. I come in in the morning, and I will go to the, the spot where I ride, And uh, I will take that person's gear off, put it away, and put mine on, check my full ensemble, make sure it's um, safe and ready to go, check my lights, my thermal imaging camera, 
my computer on the dash, uh, my radio, make sure I have fresh batteries in my radio, and uh, that's my spot. And then the driver will check the truck. Uh, he does a, a full bumper-to-bumper check every Monday. Uh, and then every day of the week, he checks all the vital parts of the truck, make sure it's ready to go. Fridays is a bumper-to-bumper inventory, right down to the last Band-Aid, hmm. hose, nozzle, mm-hmm. axe. Hmm. Uh, everything gets checked. Uh, and then the firefighter, he does the same thing. He, has, he checks the actual medical bags, make sure they're ready to go, uh, so that when the alarm goes off, we're ready to roll out the door, because we never know when that's going to happen. Hmm. You train by yourselves? Or do you train in groups? We always train together. Uh, We never go anywhere alone. Um, We go to the the store together. Uh, People will see us at County Market in our big red truck and all three of us shopping. They'll say, does it really take three of you to go grocery shopping? (laughs) No. But if the alarm goes off, out the door we go and we go together. You go right there. Yeah. If we're out to eat lunch and the alarm goes off, we leave it there and we go. Oh, my. And that's happened? All the time. Oh, I've gone to calls with shampoo in my hair. Just part of it. Wow. Okay. Wow. So, so, I mean, like when I was at the station and we were talking, so you're kind of in, so you were with me and we were having a conversation and talking about this, but at the same time, at any given point in time, that alarm could go off. Mm-hmm. So how, how, I mean, how do you live with that? Well, you don't live with it very well. Uh, I told the story, when I was brand new, my first day I, I came on shift and I'm going to appointments and meeting people, I didn't hear the alarm go off all day while I go to bed that night. 1 a.m. the alarm rings and it's a school bell up on the wall. The battalion chief uh, gets up and flips the light on, I'm standing fully dressed on the bed. It scared me that much. Uh, I'm still that way today. Last night the alarm went off at 12.30 and I had to peel myself off the ceiling and <laughs> gather my heart rate. and trying to make sense of what's going on because in my world, the alarm goes off. I have a minute and a half to get myself collected together, listen to the dispatch, decide where I'm going, get dressed, get on the rig, and then I have four minutes to make it to the call. Well, when I get there, then I have to decide what am I going to do? Am I going inside? Am I staying outside? Do I need more people? Uh, I have to read all those different factors and then make decisions based on that. And five minutes before that, you were in deep REM. Yes. <laughs> and you've got yes. to be fully alert. And Non-functional to, to fully ready. Has there ever been a time when your training made the difference in between life and death? Yes. Uh, I've been in a fire where uh, it was very hot and working uh, very hard, and I ran out of air. We normally have a, an alarm on the pack that goes off and tells you about five minutes of breathing air left, that's your signal to, you need to leave. Hmm. Well, my alarm had gone off, and I'm waiting on another crew to replace us, and I was breathing too hard, working too much, uh, just consuming too much air, and I breathed that bottle down, and the mask sucked into my face, burnt my cheeks, and I panicked. I mean, I'm not going to lie, I, I freaked out. Mm-hmm. And, but through my training, they, uh, they always tell you, don't panic, don't panic, <laughs> don't panic, don't rip your air mask off. Because if you rip your air mask off in a in smoky environment, you're really going to have a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. So I kind of went back to that training. Okay, lay down on the floor, find your hose line. It came in, it has to go out. Well, I found it, I followed it out, and made it okay. Yeah. But wow. we have a person off right now that 
got injured in a fire just before Thanksgiving. He's still off duty. Okay. Okay. So those wow. things happen. Wow. wow. Ready to go at a moment's notice. Firefighter okay. ready. That's your vocation, man. Oh. Well, I am glad uh, that God has put you where you are. I told the first service, if uh, my house is ever on fire, I want you there. So, I'm just down the road. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, this uh, theme of readiness, and you just heard a small piece of the conversation that I was able to have with uh, uh, Brett, but you, you get the... Uh, you get the teaching there about the importance of readiness. And that theme shows up in our scripture today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And uh, I think you're going to be able to hear this theme of preparation and readiness concerning an event which Paul speaks of as the day of the Lord. We'll talk about that. 987 is where we'll find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, But let us keep awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is God's word. So could you hear echoes of preparation and readiness Uh, words in our text such as being fully aware and uh, so that you won't be surprised, verse 4, words like keep awake, be sober, readiness dominates, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, readiness for what? What What are we being ready for? And in these verses, what Paul is telling A church 2,000 years ago in the free Roman city of Thessalonica, and it's a message for Windsor Road Christian Church today, our readiness is this. God wants his people to be ready for the final stage in salvation history. That's what he wants us to be ready for. 
the final stage in salvation history, which is the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth at the appearance of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what these verses are calling us to be ready for. The final stage in salvation history, the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. And in order to really grasp these verses, uh, we really need to kind of uh, unpack what the stages are. We talk about what you told us what the final stage is. What are the, what are the stages of salvation history? These verses that we just read really serve as a worldview. You know what a worldview is? A worldview is a lens through which you interpret life. And everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a worldview. Uh, even people who say, well, I don't have a worldview. That's a worldview. So everybody has a worldview. It's a lens through which you see life. Because we, are con- we don't just respond to life. We respond to how we interpret. All of us are interpreters. And life is coming at us, and we are interpreting that. And so what's your worldview? You even stop and think about that for a minute. Slow down enough and think about what is. Well, here's biblical Christianity's worldview. Here's the gospel worldview. I can summarize it in four words. It's on your outline. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That the, the creation says that the world that we live in is a created world. We are in a created universe. We are on a created planet. Our bodies have been created. And, uh, and you really don't even need to open your Bible to come to that truth. You don't. You, all you need to do is just go outside and look around the wonders of creation. You start asking yourself, how'd that get there? How'd that get there? And here is where a a Christian teacher and philosopher and thinker and author, William Lane Craig, has really helped me with three very helpful sentences. The first is this, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. That's the first sentence. The second sentence, the universe began to exist. The universe, this, this hasn't always been here. At some point in time, this began to exist. And therefore, the universe has a cause. And so that cause, that the agent of that cause took place outside the universe, not within the universe, meaning that the agent behind that cause uh, was, is immaterial, is a timeless, is, is spaceless, without time, without space, with, uh, is non-material, uh, almighty, all-powerful. Be careful. Those are working definitions for the word God. God. And that's why we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We live in a created world, and God said that it was good creation. Creation, fall. Fall answers the question, what's wrong with this world? What's wrong with this world? Now, all you got to do is read the front page of the paper and you can figure out what, that quite, what's wrong with this world. Something's wrong with this world. 
You read the front page of the newspaper, you read about murders and disasters and tragedies and upheavals. Uh, you read about people barging onto school campuses uh, and, and uh, murders taking place. You read about countries encouraging upon other countries. You, 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 it just, what's wrong with this world? Your answer is going to reflect your worldview. And this is where worldviews will often you know, separate and diverge. Why? There's one worldview that says, well, the reason why this world is so wrong is because uh, you don't think you're God. That's why this world is so wrong, because you don't think you're God. And what you need to do is you need to awaken the God or goddess within you. And that'll improve your thinking and improve your relating, improve your way of life, et cetera, et cetera. And biblical Christianity says that the reason why this world is broken is because you think you're God. And you think you've got to be in charge. And you want to be on the throne. And you want to be sovereign. And when our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, the reason why they and we, their descendants, have broken this world is because we want to be God. We want to be in charge. We don't want to worship God, serve God, trust God, love God. We want to be God. And as a result, our relationships have been fractured. Uh, The relationship between Adam and Eve became immediately fractured. They started blaming one another. Adam's first words after God called him to account. Well, the woman you gave me, there's a man for you. (laughs) And then, you know, uh, uh, Eve blamed the serpent. There was blaming going on. Relationships between one another are fractured. Uh, Our relationship with our environment and creation is fractured. There is not, there's no... There's no crack or crevice that remains untouched by our fallenness. And then our relationship with God has been fractured. And we're separate. He's a holy God. It's his house. And if we're going to come into his house, he gets to make the rules. And so we're separate from him. Creation, fall, redemption. God in his love and God in his mercy does not want to annihilate us. He wants to redeem us and rescue us. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth, who came into time and space. And he lived the life that we should have lived. In Jesus' life and in his teaching and in his relationships, we look at him and say, this is what God intended for us all along. He lived a life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we should have died. Because my moral crimes against the holy God, God is, God is the most offended person by my disobedience. He's the most offended person. And, and so who's going to pay for my disobedience? Jesus comes in and says, I will. I will. I will pay for Randy's disobedience. And he died as a victim of injustice on a Roman cross. And he was buried. And on the third day, God vindicated him by raising him bodily from the grave. Eyewitnesses testified to experiences of the resurrected Christ in a body. And lives were changed. And Christ has ascended to the heavenly realm at a place he himself called paradise and is seated on the throne. And he is the ruler over all that is seen and is unseen. In him everything holds together. And he has sent his spirit 
upon his people to be and do and continue his work of redemption. And we are beneficiaries of his Holy Spirit. And God wants us to go out into our community and our, to our neighborhood and to the world to, to share this good news of redemption through Christ. This is the commission that he has given us. Creation, fall, redemption. And then there is a day, a fixed day, when God will finalize his restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And on that day, Christ will appear and, and every eye will see. We say, Do you really believe that, Bolting? That's just Christian science fiction. You're nuts. I do believe that because I believe that a dead man got up from the grave. That's the only reason why I believe that. If you believe in the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection, there's no reason why you should not believe in his appearance on a day called the day of the Lord. And on that day, he will appear and the dead in Christ will rise to receive resurrection bodies in the likeness of Jesus. And Some will not taste death. And on that day, their bodies will be transformed and we will be with the Lord forever. That's what Paul speaks of in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Life forever, resurrected bodies, resurrected world, resurrected Christ. That is our destiny. That's our hope. That's our certain future. And that's why we gather here as a church family. And so you never need to worry about where your dead loved ones in Christ are because when Jesus appears, he will bring them with them and they will receive new bodies and the living will be transformed and we will be with the Lord forever. Amen? Praise God. Until then, be ready. Be ready. There it is. That catches us up to this final stage in salvation history. Ready for the appearing of Christ. Well, how do we, well so what does that look like? What does it look like to be ready for the appearing of Christ? Paul tells us in these verses, there's three ways. And the first way is this. The first way to be ready for the appearing of Christ is by not knowing when he's going to appear so that you're not surprised when he does. I'll say that again. By not knowing when he's going to appear so that you're not surprised when he does. Well, doesn't that make, that doesn't make sense, Bolting House? I mean, that's, that, because, I mean, wouldn't it be better if I knew when he was going to appear so that I would know? No, no, no. Brett doesn't know when the alarm's going to sound, but he's never surprised when it does. See? He knows it's going to happen. He just doesn't know when. And when it does, he's not surprised. Right? And... We ready ourselves because, you know, you've, you've, if, you, if you knew then, you might become complacent. The training might slip, might become sloppy, see? You, you wouldn't live by faith, by trust. Paul says, no, you don't know when it's going to happen. So then, there's no need to speculate. There's no need to date set. There's no need for any of that silly nonsense, Because the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief 
in the night. That is, it's going to be sudden and it's going to be unexpected. Verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and seasons, that's the day of the Lord. Brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, sudden and unexpected. So don't distract yourselves by concocting all these silly charts because you're going to be distracted from doing the thing God wants you to do, which is encouraging one another and building one another up, you see? I mean, who sits by the window in the middle of the night in a chair with a shotgun on their lap waiting for the thief to come? Talk about being paralyzed. And some Christians paralyze their lives by obsessing over the times and the dates. God's not telling You just be ready. So no obsessing. Sudden and unexpected. That's reality. But you see then, you know, we kind of tend to swing to the other extreme. Well, it hasn't come in 2,000 years. (laughs) Ain't coming. That's just a silly Narnia myth. Forget it. Paul says not so fast. Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security. Stop right there. That was a slogan in the Roman Empire in the first century. Kind of much like our, you know, on our, on our money we have E pluribus unum, you know, out of many one. Kind of our slogan. Well, peace and security. Pax et securitas. It was on their money. And it was brought about by the peace of Rome, why people were able to uh, traverse the Roman Empire in safety and commerce and and life. That's what made Rome a superpower because uh, they had this peace that was established across the realm, but not even the peace and security of the empire will prevent the change that's coming when Christ appears because it will be inevitable. And that's the word picture of labor pains in pregnancy. It will be sudden and inevitable. Like a thief in the night, sudden and unexpected. Like a thief in the night, sudden and inevitable. So be ready. Be ready by not knowing when it's going to happen so that you won't be surprised when it does, just like our firefighters. That's the first way. The second way that God calls us to be ready is to live distinctly attractive lives. Distinctly attractive lives. That's what we see here in in verses 4 and 5 and 6 and Paul says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. Paul is kind of piling on word pictures, and he's mixing his metaphors, and he's making every English teacher in this room cringe. What are all these mixed metaphors here? He's talking about uh, thieves and peace and security and day and light and night and awake and, and, and uh, uh, sober. Well, Paul is saying that you'll, in Christ, you're day people. You're light people. You're awake people. You're sober people. That's who you are. It's your identity. This is how God made you to be in Christ. 
So now your day, people, see, you live on a different time zone than the rest of the world. Because, you see, we live in a world of darkness, and we live in a world of night, and we live in a world of uh, drunkenness or inebriation. And that means, by that, Paul means people are spiritually numb to the reality of God in their lives. So people might think that there's a God who created this world, but they don't think that he cares about them. And they're just numb to his reality. And Paul is saying, no. You are people of light. You are day people. You're sober people. In other words, you live with the realization that you do matter to God. He cares about you. He loves you. The hairs on your head are numbered. And you be awake in a groggy, sleepy world. And then he piles one more metaphor on, the metaphor of being uniformed, you see. I asked Brett to wear his uniform today. He wears that uniform at the station during his duty. It's a signal. It's an identifying mark. And it means I'm ready, I'm prepared. And your uniform, Paul describes in verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Here it is. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, so a piece of armor that is to protect your heart, and then the helmet of the hope of salvation. So your mind, your head, your thinking is protected. Your heart is protected. Your head is protected. And notice Paul says the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope, faith, hope, and love, that trio. That showed up at the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians, didn't it? Look back up in chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul speaks of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love began this letter, and faith, hope, and love is going to land this letter, conclude this letter. But we wear this uniform. This is kind of a Cliff Notes version of the armor of God that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 6 breastplate protecting my heart, helmet protecting my thinking. And why? Because God's intention for us, his desire for us, his longing for us, his heart for us is not toward wrath, not toward punishment, not toward eternal separation, but what God wants from Egypt. God God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we live or die, we are with him. That's our destiny, church. Are you encouraged by that? This is good news. So then what will our lives specifically look like then? You know, if uh, we are ready by, you know, not knowing when Christ appears so that we won't be surprised when he does, and if we're ready by living these distinctively attractive lives, and if we are ready by truly trusting God's intentions for us, what's, what's my life going to look like? What's, what's, what am I going to look like when that breastplate of faith and love are strapped on and the helmet of hope of salvation is on? What is that? Well, 
Well, yeah, that means you're going to be involved in some church activities. Of course, yes, yes, yes. Read your Bible. Yes, pray. Yes, serve. Yes, go uh, on on a, a missions trip. Be involved in a small group. Yes, 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 yes. And in addition to that, understand that what happens in your work world, that's a part of being ready too. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say you're an educator. Next time you step into that classroom, you're going to step in knowing that you represent the king. And you're going to go into that classroom realizing that all truth, whether it's chemistry or biology or algebra or engineering or calculus or the languages or accountancy or literature, listen, all truth is God's truth. And, and this thrill of discovery and learning can make us hungry to learn more and know more because life can be changed. And, oh, this is so good because it comes from God. You see, you're ready. Let's say you're a sales executive. Well, that means, my goodness, your, your life is now, it's not just the point is not just the commission now, no. The point of selling is now helping. You're an assistant. You're helping. You're assisting others obtain a product which will add value to their lives. It just changes everything because you're now in the service of the king. Let's say you're in construction or in the trades, mechanic, plumber. You you mean your work's going to be done in safety and it's going to be done in a timely way and it's going to be done on budget and it's going to be done with integrity because you serve a king. And that's how you prepare even coaching, athletics, my goodness. How, how does that exemplify readiness? Oh, I got to tell you about John Wooden, the most storied basketball coach in collegiate history, John Wooden from UCLA. <laughs> you know what the very first lesson that he taught his first-year players, you know what it was? You know what that lesson? Not the free throw, not the dribbling. You know what that lesson was, very first lesson? How to put on your socks. No kidding. How to put on your socks. The veterans knew what was coming. First-year players were no doubt perplexed by this first lesson taught by the Hall of Fame coach. He taught them how to put on a pair of socks. Not just once, but before every game, before every practice. And why? Here's why. Listen, Wooden found out that many players didn't properly smooth out the wrinkles in their socks around their heels and their little toes. And if left uncorrected, these wrinkles would cause blisters that would hamper their performance at crucial times during the games. And many players thought about that. They laughed about it, but wouldn't. He still, he would not compromise. He stuck to the basic fundamental. I stuck to it. I believed in that. I insisted on it because he believed that success was about doing a thousand little things well. And as Christians, we can easily forget about the fundamentals. And if we do, we run the risk of developing painful spiritual blisters that can hamper our growth in Christ. A coach, working with players, being ready. I could talk about Counselors, I could talk about health care, I could talk about a pilot, I could talk about other emergency services, uh, a fitness coach. If God's going God's to give me a new body, why do I care about this one? You know why? Because God created the one you have now. 
and your body matters. He wants you to steward it well. Whether you're a chef, whether you're a homemaker, whether you're a farmer, whether you're a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, listen, you, you be ready through integrity and industry and excellence in your vocation. You get the point? You understand what I'm saying? Living in readiness is not mystical. It's not mystical. It's about getting up and serving God's purposes according to God's giftedness with God's strength. And it is about going wherever God's gifts in your life can be exploited the most. Loving God, loving people every day with consistency. Doing a thousand little things well. That is what it means to be ready. Are you ready? Johnny Erickson Tata, after living as a quadriplegic for 45 years, she once reflected on the diving accident that changed her life. She remembers being a 14-year-old, and she had embraced Jesus as her Savior, but her, in her words, she had confused the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. And so she thought, well, I was going to be a Christian, and that means I'm going to lose weight and get good grades and get voted captain of the sports team and go to college, marry this wonderful guy who makes 250 grand a year, and we're going to have two and a half children. It was all me focused. It was what can God do for me? In fact, I almost thought I'd done God a favor by accepting Jesus. Oh, and, and in addition to that, my boyfriend and I were doing some things we had no business doing. And, and she said in April of 1967, I came home home from a sordid Friday night date. I wept. I said, God, I'm staining your reputation by saying I'm a Christian, doing one thing Friday night and doing something else on Sunday morning. I'm a hypocrite. God, I want you to change my life. Please do something to my life that will jerk it right side up because I'm making a mess of the Christian faith and I don't want that. I want to glorify you. And three months later, she had that accident. And immediately afterwards, she told God, I will never trust you with another one of my prayers again, ever. And after struggling with anguish and anger, Johnny said, I prayed one short prayer that absolutely transformed my life. And it was this, oh God, if I can't die, show me how to live. If I can't die, show me how to live. And that one prayer changed my life. And so she goes into these women's conferences. And during break time, she's there in the restroom. One woman's putting on lipstick and says, Oh, Johnny, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. And several women are around her nodding. How do you do it? How do you do it? Johnny says, I don't do it. In fact, may I tell you honestly how I awoke this morning? This is my average day, Johnny said as she breathed deeply. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m., and that's when my friend arrives to get me up because I can't do a thing by myself. I listen to her make coffee. And I pray, oh God, 
I mean, my friend will soon give me a bath and get me dressed and sit me up in my chair and brush my hair and teeth and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this one more day. I have no resources. I have no smile to take into the day. But you do. May I have your smile? God, I need your smile. I need you desperately. Well, by then, it's pretty quiet in that bathroom. One of the ladies says, well, what happens, to your, what happens when your friend comes through the bedroom door? What happens, Johnny says. I turn my head toward her, and I give her a smile sent straight from heaven. It's not mine. It's God's. And so, glancing now at her paralyzed legs, whatever joy you see in me today was hard won this morning. Johnny says, I've I've learned that the weaker we are, the more we need to lean on God. And the more we lean on God, the stronger we discover him to be. And that is how he wants us to be ready. Live each day as if Christ were coming. And one day, you'll be right. Are you ready? Paul says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing.